Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Lively Faith Podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Nathan Stomberg. I'm the rector of Holy Communion Anglican Church in East Greenwich, Rhode Island, and I'm joined here today by my two co-hosts. I have to my left the Reverend Mark Galloway, who is a bishop retired, and to my right, subdeacon Corey DuPont of St. Mary's. So we'll go ahead and get started here, and let's just get to know each other a little bit better. So I'll go first. Um, I am born and raised West Greenwich, Rhode Island, and I am trained as an engineer at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And just recently, although I guess, but only a few years ago now, the time sure flies. We're coming up on two years since my ordination as a rector at Holy Communion. It really is. And I never would have expected it to go by this fast, but really a cradle Anglican, we could say, of course, Episcopalian, and that's a conversation for another day. Right. Um, and currently, again, serving as the rector, uh, proudly and humbly, um, of our small congregation. Um, Mark, care to uh, share a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a native Rhode Islander, too. Uh, I grew up, I'm a, I'm a country boy, I grew up in Exeter. Uh, I was born in 1964. It was one of the most rural and poorest places in the state, and it's had a bit of a transformation in these uh, last 58 years. But uh, much of what I'm about comes from my my heritage and the place where I, I was born. And um, um, I've been in the ordained ministry almost 30 years now, and have served as a deacon, a priest, in in the office of a bishop, and. Uh, uh, I'm really glad to be part of this conversation, this ministry. I think at this point in my life, it's uh, something I've been looking for that I can make contributions in ways that I feel I've been on the shelf for a while because of health and all the different circumstances going on in our country. So I'm grateful to be here. And knowing you guys as well as I do, it's an honor to, to be able to share this time with you. Yeah, I'm grateful to have you. Yeah, thanks. How about you, Corey? Well, I am a lifelong Rhode Islander, uh, born in Providence, lived in Warwick most of my life, moved a little bit here and there, uh, a suburbanite in every single way, mm-hmm. uh, for better or for worse, right? Um, and um, I'm a member of the Orthodox Church, uh, my parish is in Pawtucket, and I'm pursuing, or trying to pursue ordination. Um, so God willing, we'll see what happens in that regard. So I'm married. I have three kids, and not too many complaints. So God is good. Yes. Yeah, I suppose I should mention my better half. <laughs> I've been married <laughs> for 35 years. I have four children, uh, three biological, one adopted, three grandchildren. They're all adults now, not the grandchildren. Well, this is 13, the grandchildren. Uh, my wife's been a stalwart in my life, foundational to who I am. We actually began dating in high school. Wow. And uh, when we were 17 years old, so uh, 41 years of my life, of my 58 years, I've, I've, uh, she's been by my side, and she is the chair of the School of Nursing at Rhode Island College, a very busy woman, but just a, a godly woman and has been just... Uh, uh, a wonderful helpmate mm-hmm. to me, in both in life and ministry. So I'm very grateful. 
I think that's a commonality to the three of us. I'd be remiss if I did not mention my own wife, who we recently happily celebrated our third anniversary in September. So similar to my time in ministry, time as a married man has also begun to speed up very quickly. And she is absolutely my rock and my companion, formed perfectly by God, Hmm. only for me. And I would not be here without her and her love and support and um, her her fellowship as well as a fellow engineer. really can't say enough good things about her. She's a lovely young lady. So, enough about us, for now anyway. One thing that our listeners may be wondering is lively faith. What is lively faith? What are we doing here? And what's the purpose of this podcast? So I think it's useful for us to discuss that and reflect on it. And I think I'll start when we were planning out this podcast, I laid out our vision and what viewers or listeners will likely see as our tagline is this. We discuss difficult questions about how to faithfully live and defend a Christian worldview by leaning on the collective wisdom of the universal church throughout the ages. And as we just mentioned, we all come from a Rhode Island background, so We have a specific Rhode Island flavor, but these principles and the things that I think we will discuss in the coming weeks and months and beyond are are applicable beyond the Rhode Island context as well. But lively faith, Mark, can you speak a little bit to lively faith and where that comes from? Well, in Anglican heritage, uh, lively faith is a term that was is attributed, I'm not sure if he's exactly the originer, originator of the term, but uh, Archbishop Thomas Cramner, who is the modern Archbishop of Canterbury in uh, the 16th century, when he was compiling uh, really the, the foundational book of Anglicanism, the Book of Common Prayer in its original versions, um, spoke about faith, being lively faith, and at the time of the Reformation controversy, having that qualifier, lively faith, was uh, very important to Anglicanism at the time, but certainly as it's been played out through history, um, to distinguish it from uh, continental Protestantism, particularly um, Calvinism coming out of Geneva with John Calvin, and in parts of Lutheranism, which uh, at times in a big word, what could could have a tendency to be antinomian. That mm-hmm. is, it, it downplayed the necessity of good works because of its emphasis that you're justified by grace and faith alone. And uh, Anglicanism has been a, a more eclectic and um, comprehensive understanding of the economy of salvation in the sense that uh, a lively faith is as the book of James would say, right? Uh, faith without works is a dead yes. faith. And you know, there's much controversy at the Reformation about about that. So uh, I, I think it's in great continuity with the word we like to use, the great tradition of the church, which uh, much of which is shared with the, the glorious tradition of orthodoxy and are, are really our parent uh, 
the Roman Church and, and ourselves and the Anglican tradition that uh, without lively faith, we can't effectively share the gospel to a broken world. Otherwise, you, you're just talking words and babble or theological jargon to people, right? We have to be able to, to live our faith so that we give witness in an evangelical sense by how we behave, what we say, what we don't say, what we do, what we don't do. And um, again, these are, these are such important concepts, lively faith in our case, that seems to be lost in so much contemporary theological uh, discussions that it has skewed what people think Christianity is. And so progressive forms of uh, Protestantism uh, are, are completely off them mooring when it comes to these things. Yeah, and I think in a popular context too, it comes back to the idea that all I need is my personal relationship with Jesus. And that's not to say your personal relationship with Jesus isn't important, but our faith encompasses so much more than that. And if you reduce it down to this one idea of just how you feel about Jesus on the inside and perhaps whatever your thought life is about him, then there's really no impetus or drive to live that faith out in the world. And certainly there's no practicum associated with it, no, no sort of moral theology because it allows you to essentially mold and morph God and Jesus Christ into whatever is most agreeable for your mindset. And I think that's the real danger with that. It certainly is. It really makes the church unnecessary. Right. This idea that uh, the church is our mother, right, as the great patristic fathers would, would tell us, and that we're children of Mother Church. Right. And uh, as I like to point out to some of our uh, some of our brethren, you know, St. Paul makes it clear, the church is the ground and pillar of mm. truth, the church. So wait, from the earliest generations, it was the church that was the deposit of, of truth, immutable truth, the kerygma, as scholars say, the, the essence of the gospel that would lead, that leads to the salvation of mankind. And I'll interrupt you once more. I think what you're really saying here is that one of the driving forces behind our worldview and our perspectives on this podcast is that the teaching and the traditions of the universal church, the great traditions as we were just discussing, is really more, so much more than the popular idea of, well, I don't need the church. The church is full of hypocrites. It's really just about me and God. And without that, like you said, Mark, you become totally unmoored. And I think I'd like to hear your perspective too, Corey, because as, as we alluded to, we're, we've got both sides mm. of the river here, east and yeah. west, and surely uh, orthodoxy has its own flavor of yes. this as well. Yes, uh, the, the Bosphorus, right? Not the Tiber. Right, <laughs> right. The, the other river. So yeah. the, the other river, a little, a little farther east. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's an interesting question. Um, and I think from an Orthodox perspective, um, if an Orthodox Christian were to answer that question 
I, I think the ideal response would be in accordance with, with the Orthodox saints um, and with many theologians, the great theologians, is that a lively faith is, is, is living what they would call an ecclesial life, right? A life in the church, right? It, it's, not, uh, it's not a churchless Christianity, right? It, it's a life that you live um, in communion with your fellow baptized. It's a life you live in communion um, with the hierarchy of the church, of course. Um, which we may use language like that today and, and, and look at it pejoratively, right, and think that, well, that just sounds so cold and, and right. callous. Yeah. But it's really not, though, right? That's, that is, in the truest sense, what the church is, right? And we live in communion with one another um, in our participation in the mysteries of the church, baptism, Eucharist, of course, um, and the other sacraments. But um, you would certainly, I think, see from an Eastern Christian perspective less emphasis upon the individual suppositions of what, what it means to be a Christian and more on the communal. So, yeah. I think that's, that's a really great way of putting it and kind of twist the glass a little bit too. And I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole here, but it really does call us back to these earlier forms of Christianity, especially pre-Protestant revolution, and especially now in our own cultural context, sure. where the Christian faith has largely been Americanized, and you have this focus on rugged individualism in your own personal faith versus the necessity of living and existing in church community, which is what God has made us for. Yes. I think, Nathan, that, that's... Um just so important and it, it's difficult to have this conversation without coming off as being pejorative about exactly about brothers and sisters in christ that we love uh, from evangelical strands of christianity but that americans didn't invent christianity <laughs> and there's just 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 Even jesus wasn't a republican right or <laughs> or, or that he, yeah it, that the church existed long before the Reformation. It certainly existed long before uh, the first uh, revival in America and the, the Second Great Awakening and all of these things. And uh, you, know, you have a really truncated view of what Christ, the incarnate God's plan for humanity was if you're going to begin your understanding of the church with Luther's tacking his theses to the door or Wittenberg or with uh, Calvin Institutes or the English Reformation or uh, or the divide in 1054 between East and West. It, it, it's all a misconception of the church's flow through time and space and that the Bride of Christ is, is the most important thing to the triune Godhead uh, on earth. And uh, yeah, Americanism just has been devastating to the concept of what the church is. And uh, there's few of us who can and are willing to speak to that, right? Because it doesn't sell. It doesn't sell. It's not what's going to come bring people in for, I would argue, more entertainment than they are uh, becoming true disciples of Christ, catechized believers 
of the truth of the great tradition of the church. I think that's really well said. And just to add, that's obviously going to be a tough pill to swallow. I think even for the three of us, we get caught up in that mindset of an Americanized, individualized Christianity. But it just occurred to me, too, that this perspective should really be a comfort, especially right now as we struggle with what the future of our country is going to look like. Mm -hmm. But it's important for us to remember that the Christian church existed long before the foundation of the United States, and it will exist long after, indeed, until the end of the age. And yeah, we did great comfort in that. We just, you know, we just uh, celebrated the feast of Saint Ignatius of Antioch recently. You know, who, you know, wrote the most important literature outside of the New Testament. You know, seven letters to churches. He died in about the year one hundred seven, and uh, already, in, in, in Ignatius's life, he's like the first great first superstar of the Christian life, right? We know his story. He's being dragged by the authorities all around the empire. And you're thinking, yeah, as we, we show these upstart Christians that this is what happens to you if you go against Roman authority, we're going to yeah. drag him through all these ports, and that's going to dissuade these people yeah. from wanting to follow Christ. And instead, he really just <laughs> creates this massive following, and he willingly dies in the amphitheater. And uh, But already by his his lifetime, you know, some 70 years after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the sacraments are firmly established, the nature of the church. He uses the word, he's the first one that we know of to use the word universal Catholic for the, mm -hmm. for the church. Um, these are the things that are utterly lost to the vast majority, not only people within our our two traditions and our sisters and brothers in the Roman Church, but it doesn't even register within most of the Protestant world of how significant and how awesome is the patristic origins and sustaining power of the Holy Spirit through the early church. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, e even beyond Americanism, Right, you know, because you have to look at the roots of Americanism and the roots of America itself, right? Which is the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. right? right. You look at the Enlightenment, which of course is outside and before, prior to the founding of the United States, right? It's it's a European movement. Um, so if you look at it from that perspective, um, that th there are some certain um, there's some nascent aspects of even the United States which we love. Right, as a country, it's our home. But we also recognize, too, that there, there is a certain um, anti-Christian, I would even argue, um, aspect to many of our best institutions, mm. right? Um, and you think of, for example, how much, um, whether it's formal or it's informal, uh, this strict separation that allegedly exists between church and state, mm -hmm. right? It's... it's, it's it's, it's very new and recent in history, mm. and it starts here first, right? It starts here. Um, and I think that's something as, as Christians in America, irrespective of whatever church we may be a part of, it, it, it's, a, it's a heritage and a legacy that we're very uncomfortable with, with owning, yeah. right? Because we love our founding fathers, for example, but at the same time, um, I think we would take some umbrage with, for example, the fact that, say, Thomas Jefferson went ahead and, and completely gutted the New Testament and the, and the Gospels, right? Um, 
but at the same time, we also love so much of what he had to say about uh, representative government and, and so on, right? Um, that's our legacy, right? That's, that is the American tradition, right? And then Christianity has to find its way within this tradition. So, yes. Is it? Right, and the, and the, um, the sequential origin of America is so important in that interpretation. So um, America overwhelmingly is found by Protestant dissent. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So it's dissenting against the Anglican establishment, mm -hmm. and uh, I think a lot of people think, "Oh, the early colonies were dominated uh, by Anglicanism, and subsequently early America." That's just not true. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, and so you, there's this dissent not against against the state church of England, but that does infect the whole American Enlightenment attitude yeah. as all the dominoes fall. Um, you and I have talked about this many times. America is still the freest, the most powerful, the richest country in the world, and that comes from all kinds of opportunities of the genius of the founding fathers. But Corey's right, uh, exactly right, that um, this idea of absolute separation of church and state isn't even really what was intended. It, right. it, it's the outcome right. of the American experience. And it's a great <clears throat> misconception, too, that people think it's a part of the Constitution, right. which not was there. not, yeah. it was just, right. that was coined by Jefferson, correct? Right. So. Yeah, and is, you know, inadvertently in a letter to some Baptists in Connecticut, and all yeah. of a sudden it becomes like it was, it's been codified into yeah. uh, American law, L-O-R-E, that, you know, it's... Uh, it's an amendment to the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. it's like in the Bill of Rights or something, right? Most Americans couldn't get, tell you what's in the Bill of Rights, but by golly, they think that is. Exactly. I think yeah. that's part of a wider conversation that we've had before, this idea of myth in American experience and in Christian experience versus being able to develop an intellectual honesty that allows you yeah. to engage with history right. as it is, both the good and the bad, and yes. that you don't idolize the good, which is rightfully captured in the myths that we have mm -hmm. about our American heroes, but at the same time, not throwing out the baby with the bathwater when yeah. we speak of difficult things and tragedies within history that sure. we're dealing with real fallen human beings. And I think that just tying that in, I guess, as a broader idea that I think will get covered and that we that we want to be able to bring as a perspective with this show. Yeah, we're living through it, right? We're living through... so. I, you know, we're three different generations, um, literally boom, 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 three generations. So for me growing up, every classroom, and I grew up in the same district as you did, but uh, there was a picture of Lincoln and Washington in every classroom that I grew up in, mm -hmm. right? And so we, we had a mythical view yes. that was wrapped around a historical view that got interpreted in a way that gave the best light to Washington and Lincoln, right? Yeah. Uh, the quality of Washington and Lincoln as absolutely unique people in human history speak for themselves, but we needed, we needed to bring in myth, right? Lincoln's almost a deity, right? So if you look at art coming out of the post-Civil War era, he's ascending to heaven, yes. right? And Washington, too, right. was interpreted that way. Um, so we've gone from that, you know, me going to grade school in the late 60s through the 70s to today where we 
we get rid of the names of these of the two greatest presidents in American history of the elementary schools and high schools and tearing down their statues and all of these things, right? So this dichotomy, this social civil war that's going on about uh, Americans' origins and her development is just festering at a level unprecedented uh, in our lifetimes and in the history of the country, even beyond the Civil War, I would argue. Oh, yeah. And that um, the three of us, as so many of, I, hopefully people are going to be listening to us in our uh, efforts to try to be accurate and eloquent about this, are, are, are very frustrated and aren't sure what direction to take uh, this information. Yeah, and you mentioned that dichotomy too. I think a lot of us can relate with wrestling with that, especially within our own congregations and circles beyond that, where on the one hand, you've got our reaction, or the cultural reaction to these myths about American history mm. that have been carried forward as part of our tradition, things like Abraham Lincoln that you just discussed, or we give the example of George Washington tossing a coin across the Potomac and that... He had a, gr had a great arm. He had a great arm. <laughs> Chopping down a cherry tree where cherry trees actually don't grow. Exactly. In Virginia. <laughs> right. He was and, a real Nolan Ryan. And other than uh, Jesus and maybe the Blessed Virgin Mary never told a lie. <laughs> yes. So you've got those things on the one hand, which I think especially in a lot of conservative Christian circles... We idolize that image, and when we are confronted with information, historical information about the fact that, well, Washington and Jefferson, they weren't perfect Baptists or Episcopalians or Anglicans, just, again, not historically accurate, but to give it as an example. Yeah. We wrestle with the fact that, well, they weren't perfect Christians after all, and they weren't just founding the country solely as uh, as a Christian nation. It was yeah. a Judeo-Christian background, but... It's a totally new experiment. It's a, new, a, a totally new experiment, exactly. But at the same time, we've got that and the backlash to the culture at large now wants to throw all of that out, yeah. including those Judeo-Christian roots. Yeah, there's a certain rationality to it. Um, you know, some years back when... All of this began when they began going after statues and, and, and other such public monuments. Um, you know, it, it was so out of control that um, even in Massachusetts, for example, they were going after um, an effigy of the 54th Regiment in Massachusetts, which was an all-black regiment during the Civil War. They had to take that down, too, because that in itself has become a symbol allegedly of oppression, right? It's ridiculous, of course, because it should be one of the milestones Right, of, of, of the black American experience in this country, right? Fighting for your own freedom, right, in the Civil War. But um, it doesn't have to make sense. None of it makes any sense anymore. So. No, but it's still selective, isn't it? I wrote a paper, and, um, and several scholars have written about it, but about Chief Seattle, hmm. right? Obviously, the city is named after him, and there's a great statue of him in the city. And, and in context, Seattle was a great man. Uh, but in accruing his power, he literally eradicated his other Native American competition, genocide, yeah. quite frankly. 
and also owned slaves, black slaves, mm -hmm. that served his confederation of Native Americans. Um, but nobody's tearing down the Chief Seattle's statue. It's ever going to happen, yeah. right? And that's the hypocrisy of the whole thing. And we, we, we can't, we endlessly want to project our values, I wouldn't say our three values, but being collective, what's currently going on in America, a contemporary value back onto people who lived in completely different contexts and cultures. Yeah. It, it, it's just, it's beyond illogical and silly. Right? Um, there are no perfect people. Right? right. We, we already mentioned it's a very small pool yeah. <laughs> in, in human history. And I, it just boggles my mind, people who, who live this uh, perspective, but especially people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ in the contemporary setting who buy into this. And um, it's just so destructive. We of all yeah. people should understand the realities of human nature and oh. and sin. Mm -hmm. yep. Well, I mean, so many rabbit holes we could go down. We all know, as people who work in ecclesiastical function in churches, is that uh, the average American doesn't know what original sin is and doesn't believe in it. Mm. And, and certainly doesn't believe it affects their behavior. Yes. Right? It's, it's not part of their their theological DNA whatsoever. And if you start at that point, you, you're, always, you're never going to get to the right place in your understanding of what's wrong with human nature. So your solutions will always be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Garbage in, garbage out, yeah. as right. they say. Yes. I, think, I think that's a good point to transition. We're talking about ideas and the conflict of ideas and We've been speaking to it more broadly on kind of an American United States level. Let's bring it down to Rhode Island now. And the three of us here, different generations, mm -hmm. by God's providence, we've now come together around this little table to talk about various issues. Coming from these different generations, we're going to have different perspectives as well. So I think it would be helpful for us to go over what we see as these generational challenges, these ministry challenges from the perspective of each of our three generations. And of course, Corey and I being deferential and humble will allow our <laughs> elder statesman, Reverend Galloway to uh, go first as be, our resident baby boomer. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I won the last year of the boomers, so in 64. Um, as we were talking before we went on air, Rhode Island is utterly unique in its socio-demographics and its, it, its post-Civil War history of any other state in the United States. First, we're a city-state, yeah. right? We're only 35 by 50 miles, right? Delaware is just a little bigger than us, right? Um, in modern Rhode Island, from the turn of the 20th century on, is, is utterly influenced by Catholic immigration. Hmm. Uh, Catholics of all different uh, European nationalities, but predominantly Italian and Irish, came to dominate the <clears throat> socio-political 
an economic landscape, especially the metropolitan areas in Rhode Island, and then end up dominating both the, the political system at the local level and, and law enforcement. Mm. And meanwhile, the English, who had been here for centuries, still owned the land, yeah. uh, had the money, and employed everybody, right? And, and so Rhode Island politics um, and the role of the church, uh, this is slightly not the case anymore, but for a long time, decade after decade after decade, Rhode Island was the most Catholic state in the country in just its population. And so the church had influence on a city-state in Rhode Island like no other place in the world. I mean, the only thing that would be comparable would be the parishes in Louisiana, perhaps. Oh, yeah, sure. Something That's like that. Yeah. And so, so if you were a Protestant uh, growing up in Rhode Island, you tended not to live in Cranston or Providence or Winsocket. You yes. lived on the fringe areas, of uh, which we would now call South County or... Foster Gloucester or out near the Connecticut border. And so that's where Baptists and other non-Catholics would, would be thriving. And the Cold War between those entities was massive. We, we really can't even imagine it any, anymore. Uh, it was just beginning to thaw when I was a boy. You grew up when it didn't really exist. No. So... Um, so, so my experience growing up in Exeter, my mother grew up, she moved with her parents to Exeter in 1942. They were French. My grandfather was uh, from Quebec, his family, French-Canadians. They were the only Catholics on the road. And at the time, Exeter was you know, this very rural. The, the road was dirt. They had four one-room schoolhouses in the town that did not have running water or electricity. This is only in the 1940s, and she went to that schoolhouse till 1956. Um, but they were the only Catholic family in their school, as opposed to if you grew up in South Providence, there wouldn't have been any Protestants mm. in your neighborhood virtually, right? And my mother was, and my aunt, there's only two kids, my aunt Jackie, they were shaped by this. They Remember, they were told by their teacher, you had to pray between, before every day, school started with, with prayer, and you had to say the Lord's Prayer, the King James Version with the doxology, and the 23rd Psalm. Hmm. But Catholics were not allowed to pray the Hail Mary. Wow. Hmm. Wow. Right? That's how powerful the culture was. Yeah. We forget America was utterly a Protestant nation, yep. mm. utterly. And Catholics didn't come into the mainstream and into the middle class of the United States of America until right around the Kennedy influence mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s. And then as with Vatican II and so much other socioeconomic uh, turmoil that went on in the 60s and 70s, Catholics have emerged into the mainstream of America to the point now you really can't distinguish between Catholic and Protestant values mm. for the most part in our country. But that's not how I grew up. I grew up in a very different um, context mm. than that. Uh, the, the other thing is how the Catholic experience tied itself to the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And so in, in Rhode Island, other than for a couple years in the 50s, uh, the Democratic Party has controlled both chambers of 
the Rhode Island legislature, the Senate and the House of Representatives, was somewhere around a 75% majority for 90 years. Yes. It is the most one-party state oh, yeah. in the United States of America. Yeah. And the average Rhode Islander doesn't have a clue about any of this. They, no, I think they're just utterly enculturated into it and yeah. doesn't understand that without opposition voice and competition, you don't have good ideas and you don't have good government. And you don't have a free society. You don't have a free right. society. So my my father, so I grew up in rural Exeter, and my father was a was a town councilman. He was um, the director of athletics at the regional district, the school. Eventually, he was a small businessman. He was eventually a state representative. But at the height of his career as a politician, out of 100 members, there was only 15 Republicans in the House of Representatives. Wow. Right? And so I always viewed myself as a poor kid from Exeter who lived his life from minority value position. Yeah. Right? Which is an utterly different experience of a kid growing up in Warwick. Sure. Yeah. In the 80s. In the 80s, right. right. So just. 10 or 15 years apart from yeah. our experience. Yeah. So I'll, I'll cut that there. But yeah, yeah uh, let's, let's hear about your experience, Corey, and then growing up as a kid in the 80s. And then I want to I double back to Mark in a second because I also want to tie this to what we see presently as far as our dynamic for ministry. So yeah. while, while you answer that, we'll give, we'll give Mark a second to think about the answer to that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm at a point in my life now. I just turned 44 a week ago. Um, we have the same birthday. Yeah. By the way, right? Birthday buddies. Uh, which I did not know. And um, you know, I, you reach a point. You're know, usually around the 40s where you become nostalgic for your childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's been going on probably for a few years now mm-hmm. with me. Um, I loved the 80s. I loved growing up in the 80s. Um, and the movies were great. The television shows and the cartoons were great. The they toys really were, were great. Everything was awesome. Right. And um, I'm, I'm nostalgic. No, nothing for the 80s. wasn't great. Nothing wasn't great in the '80s. You know, um, the country, socio-politically, was 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 doing well. Um, not perfect. It never does. But you know, Reagan was president. Of course, um, it wasn't perfect. Of course, you know, I, I readily admit. But um, it was great. Everybody was making money in the '80s. My family did very well in the '80s. My mm-hmm. father works in real estate. I mean, we we Christmases were big. In the 80s, and then the 90s came around, and things changed a little bit. Uh, not just with Christmases, but also with movies and toys and everything else. Everything just started to stink, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but for my generation, uh, it was it it was without giving into you know over characterizations. It was the age of excess, right? And and you you had everything, but I also think in in a in a weird sort of sense it. It was the beginning of the absence of, of, of religious and spiritual life in our culture, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's it's that classic dictum where you you, you see, um, you know, progress too much progress ultimately will feed a certain measure of regress, right? Morally, ethically, um, because there is such a thing as having too much. Absolutely. Right? And I think as conservatives, sometimes we struggle with that. We we like the idea of getting as much as possible and success, yeah. and, right? Um, but I think we learned eventually that that doesn't work. And so my generation, right, the, you know, we're the, uh, we're the Gen Xers, I guess. Um, we're in this weird place, right? We're, we're, not, we're not, and forgive me, we're not as idealistic or 
maybe even as a little delusional as the boomers are about <laughs> the realities of the world. Um, but at the same time, we're also not um, as, as clearly nuts as, as yeah. <laughs> to put it bluntly, yeah. as your generation. Not that you're nuts, you know, you stand out, of course, but um, so we're, we're in this middle position of trying to figure out, well, what is the way forward? What is our contribution, yeah. generationally speaking? Um, you know, we're, we're mid-agers now, we have kids who are getting older, our kids are going into our teens, they'll be in college soon, right? I have a 17-year-old who's going to be going to college in a few years, maybe, maybe not. So what do we do, right? It's, it's very strange. It's a strange thing. Because yeah. so, all three of us are so different. In very different. Yeah. And, I've, and it's consistent with other commentaries I've heard about Gen X is it's something of a forgotten generation. We are, we are. yeah. We're the, we're the generation that began to come of age at the tail end of the Cold War, right? You, you right. grew up in the midst of the Cold oh, War. Oh, absolutely. And our own personal conversations where we have very different ways of looking at some of that, right? A absolutely. Um, absolutely. You know, so um, that, of course, affects also even today how we think geopolitically yeah. about things, right? So it's, it's, it's so strange, and it's just such a challenge. Yeah. Right? yeah. In a country that allows you to have all of these opinions, Right, Absolutely. and none of them can ever be wrong. They're always right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because just because you hold them, so that's that's a great way of putting it. One correction for you, Corey. I am definitely nuts. My wife can attest to that. <laughs> yeah. I'm just behaving for the cameras right now. You just don't destroy property. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I draw the line at destruction of property. Yeah. So, with with that as context, and we'll I'll get to myself last. But Mark, how do you see from a baby boomer perspective how everything that we just talked about, how does that fit into ministering to the baby boomer generation and the dynamic that we see within our own congregations? <laughs> big question. I it think. is a big question. Um, ministering at this point in my life, because I've, I've been ministering to baby boomers my whole life, mm. right? but there's been an evolution to that that's just massive um, you know I mean I, I was training for ministry in the mid 80s and was been ordained for 30 years and um, and I, I've said to you during your training it was you know I when I first became a priest there was still a semblance of historical Christianity mm. that was the foundational undercurrent of, of culture and as Boomers, and I'm being the youngest boomer, so as I age from my 20s and my 30s and 40s and 50s, um, the boomers became further and further distanced from the value system of their parents, the greatest generation. And I think to Corey's very important point that they became overwhelmed with success. Yeah. Success being having a bunch of useless stuff that you don't need, and uh, um, their goals were to retire at very young ages, and all of these things that left them spiritually poor. And so, as I've a if I've, as I've aged and ministered to my generation of people older than me, I, I've realized how little they even know about the Christian faith hmm. and that I've spent just an immense amount of energy in my life trying to catechize uh, boomers 
and members of the greatest generation that were older than me just about the basic tenets of Christianity. You know, the war, the, the generation after the war, uh, America thrived in the 50s. It was the only superpower in, in the, the, the Cold War came up. But, but economically, it was by far the only superpower. Mm. And, and churches were full, but not because they were learning much of anything, but there was just this massive social expectation if you were a middle-class American of decency, you went, went to church. You yeah. went to church. Yeah. You don't sleep in on Sundays. Right, you didn't right. sleep in on Sundays. Right. And it was just part of the establishment. Mm. Um, but the detrimental effect of that was, as, as we know, by the time uh, the, the boomers were becoming parents, their kids were, were being more and more disattached from Christianity and learning less and less about a Christianity. And every ensuing generation has less and less attachment to anything that even resembles historical Christianity. Yeah. And then so what's left of the greatest generation, there's very few of them left, and the boomers, some of them whom are 20 years older than me, they're like, what happened? I can't believe it. You know, my kids don't believe this. My grandkids don't yeah. believe that. They're just they're playing a game with themselves. Yeah, right. They're, they're fooling themselves. You haven't. They didn't do the job. Right. Yeah. They didn't do the job. Yeah. Right? And this is the consequences yeah. of it. Um, when we lived in austerity, when you live in austerity, faith has a much more important role to play in your life because you don't have anything else to turn to. Yeah. Right? We have too much money. We have too easy of a lifestyle, mm -hmm. and God's something we just occasionally, like, like, like it's like the Bible on the coffee table, you occasionally blow off the dust off it yeah. and mm -hmm. put it on your um, mantle when you need help. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of, uh, it's like a cycle, it's a picture, probably also a saying that gets circulated online. I'm sure Corey has seen this before. It starts with, uh, great men make good times. Yes. Good times make soft men. Yep. Soft men make hard times. Yeah. Yeah. And then hard times yeah. make great men. Yeah. That's and where we're at. That's where we're yeah, at right now. Sure. The, the yep. soft men yeah. inevitably making hard times coming. And right. I think that's, a, that's mm -hmm. a discussion for another day. But we're going to be there the rest of my life. Yeah. 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 So, uh, awesome. All right. So I think we're back. Some classic technological issues here. I know Mark really loves technology. Oh, so we, yes. we had to go off camera so Mark could tinker with it and tell us what to do. He's yeah. secretly a technological savant. So. Oh my gosh. But I think I think that was a that was a good break just to get up and stretch the legs there. So we'll just jump back into what we were talking about before. Uh, as a reminder, it was our own backgrounds coming from different generations. We've discussed Mark's perspective as a baby boomer and that impact on doing ministry today. And Corey, you've described growing up as Gen X and mm. you were just getting into what ministry looks like to Gen X people and with Gen X. And you you had just prompted us that, well, they don't even really go to church to begin right. with. Yes. They're that difficult generation where they're not there physically, but they're also not openly hostile to, to religious belief necessarily. Many would see the value in it in some sense, right? I mean, you can engage them in conversation. Um, so, but there's just not enough of, of the urgency 
right? That that comes with religious belief, right? Um, because even though, unlike the boomers, they were not the generation to, to first experience this this upsurge in um, uh, you know, com com uh, living in a comfortable society and, and having all these these trimmings and whatnot in, in social life. They are the generation that was just born into it, mm. and so when you, you live that level of comfort, right? And I look at nine eleven as sort of the, the the metric for that, right? You always ask the question, well, where were you on that day, right? And if you were my generation, you were in college, hmm. right? You're physically in college. That's where you were. That's where mm -hmm. I was. I remember when it happened. I was in the library, and um, for us, it was the shock of our lives because it was a reminder to us that this is the way the world really is. These are the things that happen in the real world, right? The real world is not your comfort, right? It's not a place where everything is always peaceful. It's not a place where you get everything you want, right? Um, the boomers could understand that to a certain degree because they grew up in the midst of the Cold War. For example, they lived through something like the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? They knew how close they had to come, right, to the end of all things. Um, if they were born just after World War II, they understood what they were inheriting because many of their fathers did not come back from that war. They went off to Korea. Oh, and then they went off to Korea almost the next day, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so for, for my generation, all of that's just in a history book. Yeah. It's not a lived experience. 9-11 changed that. Yeah. So it's, it's difficult to try and gauge where that generation is at. There's, a, there's a, a, an understanding now of the way the world works. But at the same time, there's still that unfortunate attribute, I think, in the mind where, well, I'm still going to live forever, though, right? I may not live forever comfortably, but I am going to live forever, right? Mortality is just, you know, it's, yeah. I read about that in books. It's not something I necessarily see all the time. And then I think with, you know, your generation, it's, it's more of religion. What's that? Yeah. Right? It's so, oh, really? You go, you go to places where you do that thing? Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, not for me. Yeah, it is. Right. It's, it's a very interesting yeah. dynamic. Yeah. I, I was doing physical therapy um, back when I was first diagnosed with Parkinson's. And a young lady, she was probably 30, and she says to me, Oh, what do you do for a living? And I said, Well, and I never tell them, I always, I always use the word priest because I figure that's the most generic yeah. where they're going to. And she says, what's that? Wow. <laughs> she had no idea. Yeah. And I said, well, I pastor a church. And just this blank look, you know. Yeah. And she was a sweet, you know, sweet young lady. But You get paid to do that? No clue, <laughs> clearly. Yeah. I mean, uncharged or just ignorant, unaware to that extent, which tells me her parents were that way. Yeah. Right? yeah. It's, it's staggering. And it's not a hostility. Not no, right. it no, wasn't. It's just, it's just it wasn't a, it's a blissful, innocent ignorance. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. In a way, in a way, and I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit, but just to comment on that too, for myself, being recently ordained and talking about it with friends and family, but especially peers and, and coworkers who who are unchurched, it's you would expect that you would be met with resistance or hostility as I'm sure you've experienced quite commonly in public. Mm -hmm. But I've found amongst the peers of my generation, they are so far removed from that experience of being churched or being at least tangentially related or familiar with the Christian experience that they also, many of them are in a sense, removed from a lot of the common prejudices 
that have come up. And obviously those prejudices are there and will always be there. But I think for us, especially for a certain kind of like the middle class millennial, those who are maybe more inclined to be critical thinkers and those who have been raised on really a well-meaning idea of tolerance, not you know, not the tolerance that is being thrown around mm-hmm. for the sake of canceling people, but I'm just talking about genuinely well-meant love and tolerance. There is almost uh, an openness and a curiosity to my vocation as an ordained minister that probably wouldn't have been there, say, for Generation X or perhaps early, early millennials because we've now come so full circle that it's not, oh, I'm rebelling against my faith. It's my parents didn't really practice it at all. I haven't been raised in it, so I really don't know all that much about it. So I found that to be very interesting. It's like a legend you read about. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing the differences between the three generations, right? right. The, the experiences. You yeah. Know, even, even listen to you talk, right? So um, it would be interesting to me, you know, like Vietnam dominated my, mm. me growing up. It yeah. didn't dominate you growing up. No. Right? It was already old history. Very old. It seemed like forever ago when I was a kid. Right. I knew about it because I watched TV or I right. watched documentaries with my father. and, and so. But for me, and I think that's always the case when you're a child. Everything seems far away, right? But for me, it's like, oh, yeah, that was a long time ago. That was before cable. <laughs> yeah, know? right. So, right. Um, right. But it wasn't that long before right. my generation, right? So No, no. It ended only a few years before I was born. Yeah. I can remember being six or seven years old. My, my aunt's husband was an E8 in Vietnam. And uh, he was, you know, these Time Life used to have these volumes they'd put out. It was oh. pictures of him in his platoon yeah. in the jungles and stuff. And, uh, and so... You know, my aunt watching every night television for casualty counts was a big deal, right? Um, and you can't transfer that anymore, right? It gets lost. It gets lost. And that's, that's human, just the human reality mm-hmm. from, you know, we can pretend we know about the greatest generation. We don't know anything about the greatest no. generation. No. We, we have... Most of them aren't even around anymore. No. We, how, do you, how, do you, how do you meet one? No. And how can you yeah, really appreciate right. what they did? Yeah. Um, right. You know, I, I think as a boomer, being just old enough where the, these guys were still in their 40s when I was growing up, yeah. it was, I, I, I could have an, a sense of appreciation for what they did. Yeah. Um, but a millennial or a zier, forget it. It's not going to be, I'm not even sure they, they think what they did was noble. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a very good possibility. Or yeah. just totally unaware, just doesn't enter our <clears throat> mindset. That's yeah. why I'm always, being the weirdo that I am, uh, d- drawn to those videos of the last of our greatest generation being awarded medals. I always share these with yeah. Mark, where yeah. on the news you get some 105-year-old man. This was recently out yeah. in, I think, yeah. Colorado, yeah. where he Amazing. wasn't he wasn't given his, I don't know if it was a purple heart or a silver star, but due to some clerical error. He never received his award when he was discharged um, after World War II. Wow. And they just found him now. He and his his daughter had been advocating for him to try and get him this award that he earned. And they finally came through and he was given it at 
the age of 105. Wow. And so they caught that on a local news channel out there and yeah. the video made the rounds on the internet, but it's just the most wholesome thing. And it's also, again, that distinct cultural difference in the way that he talks about World War II and having lived through it. And especially what strikes me is the profile and courage oh. of Frank nature with which he speaks about these dangerous yeah. he, he went in, encounters. He, he, like, he disarmed and killed four Germans in a pillbox. One, one of those was un- a guy who he charged a pillbox and took yeah. out the flamethrowers and it was just all by himself took out multitudes of um, I think it was in, in Japan so he, that guy you're thinking oh, okay. of he fought in the Pacific Theater. Yeah, but yeah. again you don't, you don't encourage that uh, nowadays. Yeah. So, but Oh, we can't get seed of that. No, it's 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 interesting because you know, speaking of your generation, right, and how they interpret and receive that information, if they bother to interact with it, is that this is the generation that sees fascism and you know totalitarianism everywhere, but they yes. they have no real acquaintance of it. No, when it actually did really exist, and what a whole generation of Americans. It's not so bad, you know. Yeah, did to get rid of it essentially and to curb its growth and then so on. So, yeah, and, and that becomes a very difficult demographic to, to teach and to instruct right so I guess I'll, I'll go on for a little bit I'll share my thoughts about it now answering my own question here so first my experience being raised as a millennial and I'm really more so on the back end of the millennial generation although still still solidly within it so I was a young child in the 90s and for us on the back end of the millennial generation, we are really the last ones to maybe grow up without internet in the home or to grow up with dial-up. I still remember when we got our first computer and we hooked it up to dial-up internet and you get the, the dial tone as you were logging on and you remember this too. Yes, you yes, yes. want to go and use the computer, you have to go yell at mom to get yeah, off the phone right, and right. only one person could use it as a time. Also, to our earlier discussion, one of the last generations to remember a time before 9-11. So my brother Adam, who is our fearless producer and deserves all the credit here, is at the very end of that millennial generation. And after him, we've got Generation Z, which would really be the group of people who would have no memory of 9-11. And even that is now falling into distant memory. Mm -hmm. And so for myself... I was in, gosh, I was seven when 9-11 happened. And so mm-hmm. I was in first grade. And so I, I don't remember really any details about it other than lockdowns at school and not even being particularly afraid, I don't think, because we were so shielded from the mm-hmm. information that was going on at the time. But it's still definitely a cultural hallmark for us but for example never flew before 9-11 so post 9-11 airport reality is one that I've always known wow um, I didn't make of that and there are so many interesting cultural touchstones like that now that define our experience so I think for us as part of the millennial generation the financial crisis of 2008 mm-hmm. is our most defining moment so oh. far especially for those who are older than me in this age bracket, because, of course, in 2008, I was still in junior high. So it didn't affect me individually as much, but 
of course, it was difficult for us on a family level. My dad was laid off around that time, and we struggled to make ends meet in certain regards. And I think that's not just my case, but applies to virtually everyone else who lived during that time, and especially in the middle class. And But I think when we look at how millennials behave now, those who were trying to get jobs at the time coming out of college and those who are just starting off in their careers, they really did, in many respects, get the short end of the stick because they look at the generations previous to them. We were discussing the age of abundance that we went through in the 80s and in part in the 90s, and we wanted a piece of that pie for ourselves. And so now facing this very... I would say, real economic reality that is, has been a part of the human exi- uh, experience, this idea of an economic crash, they, we didn't really know how to respond to that. And so there was some frustration there. And I think that frustration has really fed into a lot of the uh, opinions and the, this experience of the system is bad, the system is rigged because it benefited the boomers so much that you were able to buy your house for a nickel and a handful of cranberries and (laughs) now you're hard pressed to buy the same home for anything less than $300,000, $400,000 depending on what (coughs) market you live in. So the economic reality, the financial crash of 2008 is another defining moment for us in our generation and then I think another one is that we were raised again from parents who were either maybe not so much Gen X mostly baby boomer parents who again were very accustomed and deep within this culture of doing what you want, when you want, always having plenty, and also not being challenged on your ideas. And we've been affectionately or unaffectionately called the participation trophy generation. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, too, where now we get trophies for everything we do, and we don't really or haven't appreciated that value of of hard work, of hardship, building character and taking on that as a responsibility. And so that's continued to trickle down through the millennial generation and generations after a sense of a sense of entitlement yes. and a sense of not being able to question or challenge my beliefs because my beliefs are who I am. And my my emotions, my feelings are part of my identity. We've shifted very much toward uh, an emotive mindset, emotive language. And I think my generation is really the first to live through that and internalize that, where throughout school for our entire experience, we've been inculcated with the idea that your feelings matter, your feelings are important, and that progresses to your feelings are who you are, they make up your identity. And so any attack on an idea or a viewpoint for a large swath of 
my generation and the population is an attack on you as a person. And then, then we can go down any sort of path with free speech being equated to violence yeah. and things yeah. of that nature. But uh, I want to kind of stay on track here just again in terms of my own experience. So that that's really what defines it for me. You've got the just barely pre-9-11 You've got the financial crisis of 2008, and then you've just got this, again, being the first generation to really grow up with computers and the internet. You saw me and my brother a few minutes ago speaking Greek about the inputs and outputs of our recording setup, and that's just all been second nature to me. And, you know, it's so so interesting because I parented your generation, Mm. right? So... So I'm a young parent going through 9-11, the, the crashes of the late, you know, 2 of 7 and 8 economically. Now, Corey's parenting the generation younger than you. And this emotiveness gets deeper and deeper as, yes. as every generation, right? So you're going to talk about Zia's like, what's wrong with these kids, you know? They yeah. don't know how hard it was being us, right? Yeah. And... Um, it's amazing, and it goes by like a zip. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, my, my, you know, my, my two youngest are 10 and 9. And, you know, it just seems like they were born, you know, just last week, right? And it's gone by so quickly. But, um, you know, I'm sure we'll discuss this in, in, in more detail, you know, down the pike. But um, the response to a lot of that, you know, being a parent now today of children under 18, that generation, is, is to pull them back from this society, right? Um, chiefly the schools and, and so on, right? the developments that you're seeing in the schools, particularly the, the public schools. But, um, and we don't, we don't know, and we also don't know what the effects of that are going to be in the long run. Um, and also I think what we neglected to mention, and this will be a whole other podcast, is the effects of the last three years. Oh yeah. my gosh. With, with the COVID hysteria and the paranoia and the lockdowns, um, which I would argue, in the anti-Christian, well, the, that that aspect of, of it, thing. right? And I, I would also argue too that the the response to COVID, whatever it was, would not have been successful as it was with also not the preceding hysteria that came from nine eleven, and yeah. how we responded to that as well. Yeah, and that well, that reminds me of a, of a point I was going to or make there too. Or two thousand seven and eight, right? Yeah, right. you know. So my as a millennial, my culture my generation is one that has been raised entirely under an ideology of safetyism. Yes. Oh, yes. And that stems initially from 9-11 and thereafter that to be safe is the highest, one of the highest moral goods and an absolute virtue that if you are not safe, then in large respects, nothing else matters. And, And safety is government intrusion into your life. Yeah. Yes, because <laughs> no one else can ensure your safety right. as good right. or as well as the experts who reside in government. Right. Government and I think also, I, you could argue, you know, corporate intrusion as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think the last few years we have seen just how closely these two entities work together in our society. Yeah. Right? yeah. So Try to un- untwine them. Is, yeah. Is, um, and it's a long-standing issue. Yeah, it's a long-standing issue, and you know, we'll, we can unpack that. You know, 
Yeah, there are there are definitely many issues in the future that we'll be able to discuss, and I'll, I'll allude to a few of them here now because thinking about the ministry challenges that I face with my generation, they are myriad, and I think I often speak not only of myself but also looking ahead to what future ministry challenges that I will need to face decades on into my ministry and really trying to anticipate that. And I think that's a big part of what I think will be the most stimulating discussion that we have, that I, there are a lot of things that I can talk about that I think, no offense intended, will be totally alien to you both, but yeah. will be incredibly relevant yeah. to yeah. what doing ministry looks like. And we've made this a focus, I've made this a focus in large part with ministry in our own congregation too, right. with sermons and with articles that I've written. But I, we've talked about it a little bit before, this idea that my generation, I think in a large sense is bifurcated, depending on which socioeconomic strata you came from. Um, for myself going to um, the school district that I went to really was more of a private school atmosphere. Oh, absolutely. And so there are still large pockets of people my age who were brought up and brought to church, especially in Rhode Island, mm. nominally Catholic, going to church because it's the right thing to do, which I think in comparison to other of the millennial generation is kind of a, a byproduct of a bygone era, I think was probably more so um, previous generations doing that. So depending on who I talk to, I could either be speaking to a peer who is very familiar with the Christian experience, especially in Rhode Island. Many of my friends were brought up Catholic up through CCD and confirmation, and that's what you needed to do. You got confirmed, and then you were out because you are good. You are going to heaven, baby. Mm-hmm. So there's that familiarity with it. And then on the other hand, thinking of unchurched friends and peers that I know who total opposite end of the spectrum so unfamiliar with church that they don't even really have the same prejudices about it I would almost say that the people who were brought up nominally Catholic or nominally Christian were the ones who maybe had a bad experience with it or were taught a an incomplete version of Christianity because of the attitude of their parents and those were the ones who eventually rebelled against it and formed opinions about it and biases that are negatively affected. Yeah. So I think there's those two things going on when it comes to ministering to my generation. And then Generation Z and beyond leans much more toward totally unchurched. But I think there's a positive aspect to that too, where now there's an aspect of rediscovery that they've been floating in the void for so long, being left to their own devices to define their own identities. And we'll have a lot to discuss about that as well, that you're just free free floating in the wind and, well, there's got to be something more out there. And that's where I see us with with this podcast and the perspective we can provide and also the perspective of the great traditions to be able to come in and provide something far more substantive than feel-good cotton candy Christianity. Mm. You have the 
tradition of the undivided church, especially through the first three centuries. The mag- you have the magisterium, you have the mystery, and this now this connection throughout the chain of history that is much deeper than the individual Americanized Christianity that we've just discussed. So now it's no longer left up to you to define who you are. God defines who you are in that you are first created in his image and then when you receive Christ are now adopted as a son or daughter. And that's where the identity comes from. That's where the responsibility comes from. And it includes a lively faith, which means there are requirements of you as a follower of Christ. It is not well, I feel like I love Christ, and I, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Who are you to tell me what to do? I love Jesus, and that's enough, isn't it? So there, there is a big aspect of that where I think ministering, especially in Rhode Island, where there is a much greater dearth of literacy, biblical literacy, Christian literacy, the great traditions are going to be much more effective. Sacramental traditions will be much more effective because... In the, time. In time, yeah. in time. It, it'll be a slow process, but the yeah. that's ultimately what will endure because of the, the grace bestowed by the sacraments and then the mystery of those, the bread and the wine, and especially that will call this next generation forward. And it moves us... You're absolutely right, and we've talked about it, you and I, many times, is that it, it, it must move the church away from the cult of personality of the preacher. And uh, that it, God's the star, Christ is the star yeah. every week. You are not the star. In the great liturgy, right? And that even, you know, knowing you both for years, Corey, for, since he was a young man, you know, it's like, We've said it many times, man, the Holy Spirit just wasn't here this week. As if the Holy Spirit, like, absence itself from divine worship at any point. Right? Yeah. Like, you can all of a sudden divide the Trinity into to thirds or something. Yeah, you know? It's yeah. just a silliness in that um, the Holy Spirit's tied to music, particularly contemporary music, right? right. Oh, and no, it's, just, it's just void of any <laughs> logical theology and so forth. One of, one of the things that always struck me all the years, and you've both heard me speak on it many times, you know, and, it, and, and people used to get so upset with me. They go, "Everybody's a child of God." I go, "No, they're not." Yeah, yeah, that's no. So. no, they're not. Yeah. Everybody's made in the image of God, because that's that's God's order of creation. You become a child of God by choice. Right. You're adopted, and you're grafted into the family of God. Everybody's not a child of God. Right. The vast majority of people overwhelmingly in every congregation you any of us have ever sat in does not believe that right yeah and it so you, you start from from a negative from a, a, a wrong premise right a false premise right from the beginning so you, your conversation with people is based on a falsity right. everybody's not a child of God yeah. right? it's terrible theology it is yes. and and so we we have these tremendous challenges um, I think a guy at my point, you know, in the ministry, um, it's, uh, I don't have the answer, to be honest with you, you know. I mean, when I was a young guy, I was the youngest rector in the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island. I was, 
you know, I'm trying to say this without sounding like a total egomaniac, but I was the youngest rector. I was, uh, I was very successful in, in ministry, and I was in, in, in national leadership and all of this, and I assume it had to do with my acumen or maybe whatever, just being a crazy guy or whatever. And that fueled me and moved me, and it made you, it made you, it made you popular and influential and so forth. And, um, but in my career, the, the church just evaporated. It just evaporated, mm. right? You, and so, so much of my energy was people were drawn to me, and eventually the church that you guys belong to was because I was one of the only guys that would, in a sense, stand, be standing for what once was historical Christianity, yeah. right? And so, so for about a generation, we drew in Rhode Island several hundred people to our parish because we were just about it. Mm -hmm. But then people die and grow old, and, yeah. and as we know, barely any millennials came. Zia's were already, your generation was already out, and then now there's nobody. Yeah. Now there's nobody. So I, I see this with, um, you know, Protestant minister friends and evangelical friends and uh, priests in Orthodoxy and Catholicism and Anglicanism. We don't really know what to do. Right. Right? Because in a sense, we're just caretakers to uh, the, last, the last of the... Um, the boomers in, in your generation who, who doesn't really care much about Christianity, yeah. right? And so, um, what we we used our energy, our calling, our you know, we dedicated our life to for those first twenty years. It, it doesn't seem really all that relevant right. to a lot of things, right? And as you and I have talked about it, the answer for the future isn't with me. Um, not that you cease to have priestly function and you, you, you preach the word of God and God's sacraments are efficacious. We must have new generations that speak to their time and place. So that means my generation and your generation. We have to concede those things mm. to new generations if they even emerge. Right? These people have to emerge. They're not going to emerge out of a vacuum. Right. They have to emerge out of a faith experience, out of faith community. Yeah. And I think... My generation, your generation, they're just waiting to fall from the sky like snowflakes, yeah. mm. right? No, we have to happen. produce them. Yeah. A yeah. lively faith community produces men for ministry, masculine men mm. for ministry. Right. Yep. And if we're thinking anything other, it's just foolishness, it's other foolishness. Think about all the mainline churches you guys know. Oh, we're looking for a new pastor. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Right? They live in total denial in fairyland about what's been going on for decade upon decade upon decade. Yeah. And, um, or have been instrumental even in some cases right. in producing it. And there's, right. no, so. there's, there's no hope in those places. Right. There's no hope. The way we've always done things is no longer effective, and that was the no. subject of my recent article, at least part right. of the, uh, the apologia at the start of it, that we're basically church churches that are rooted in this old way of doing things they're using the wrong tool for the job you're trying to harvest wheat by using a fishing net <laughs> yeah 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 it's um so I'll, I'll just speak to some of those challenges as part of 
what does ministry look like for millennials and beyond Generation Z and even Generation Alpha after that? Although I'm no really no is? expert. Yeah, that's yeah, what I've heard. Is it's, all the time. I've heard it's, it's Alpha after after Z. And we had this discussion. Where, where do the Zoomers <laughs> fall? So I always thought that Zoomers were just Generation Z, but I could be wrong about that. It could be more of a a blanket term for Zoomers and, and Alpha, really, just yeah. raised now, it's, it's, coming of God age. Does God come up with these terms? Does God reveal these terms through a prophet he, or something? He does. Okay. In <laughs> dreams, especially. That's where I get most of my material. Just wondering. Yeah. Okay. God speaks to me personally. Yeah. Yeah. His nickname is Pew. Pew Research. Comes yeah. Up yeah. <laughs> so, one thing that comes to mind first is... Uh, our attitude maybe attitude is the wrong word we're depressed Mm. we're overdosing that's not just millennials but we have higher rates of depression and suicidality and those go up and up with successive generations because we're unmoored we're untethered from any sort of institutions or structures or responsibility so that's one part of the context that we're ministering into and we need to tailor our ministry to show what a life tethered to those things look like Mm -hmm. and so what i say so often is mark you mentioned that you don't have the answers and certainly none of us really have a perfect answer but one thing that we do know is that the the fundamentals of evangelism haven't changed that we are being called to go forth and make disciples and it's really the twist the flavor of it that is going to change and so the formula if you will of going out lively faith there it is again and living lives that are distinct from the cultural milieu and living lives that are consistent with a christian moral social sexual ethic this will make us look very distinct but also our joy will shine forth and make it evident to people that maybe this is something worth following and then that opens the doors for us to have these conversations where the apologetics are then tailored to the individual so you've got the the depressive aspect on the one end that again we we are sad and we don't understand why well we know that christ can speak to that Mm -hmm. there's another aspect of being absent of community and you hear the term metaverse and virtual reality being thrown around a lot Mm -hmm. now one thing that i don't hear discussed very often is the idea that the metaverse and virtual reality are not necessarily the image of putting on a helmet and hanging out with mark zuckerberg that people think and it's debatable as to whether that form of media will actually be successful because I think we are still incarnational beings and so people still have an innate instinct I think to be tied to the real world but my generation, Generation Z even more so are now living lives that are almost entirely virtual you think of the accessibility of the streaming equipment that we have here today Mm -hmm. that is tied in large part because rather than in person incarnated communities people are farming communities online living in slack channels and discussion groups and 
using words and names of things that you don't even understand. Yeah, Mark. I don't know what a Slack channel is. But you're forming, like you're forming communities. <laughs> you're old, man. Uh, we're talking about, it's not even quite social networking. And even I struggle with the words to describe it, but it's online communities for the lack of a better right, term. Right. And now you're able to find communities around all of these niche interests that you have, whether it's whether it's gaming or a form of entertainment or, mm. or cooking, you you name it. You can go on to Reddit and find an infinitely long thread of people discussing very, very particular interests and you fit right in. Wow. Yep. And it, it reinforces everything about your life. It reinforces everything about your life and yep. all of a sudden your online virtual avatar, who you put forward as yourself and your identity into the virtual world, supersedes your in-person incarnate reality. The real you. The real you, yeah. exactly. And so that is where the I think the biggest disconnect that the baby boomers, Gen X, in Christian ministry doesn't even perceive. Right. And so when we talk about especially a post-COVID reality for ministry, we are going to constantly be calling people back into the glories of community and communion with one another and centered around the Eucharist. And one, one final point on that, too, is I think we think that the ministry of the great traditions, Eucharistic traditions, will be understandably more effective in the long run because the Eucharist reminds us of the reality that we serve a Lord who is also incarnate. And it calls us back to that, that it's no longer just an idea floating around in the metaverse, that we actually serve a God who entered into space, time, and reality. Right, right. And then it anchors, it ties everything else together that we've just been talking about, that you don't get that with individualized Americanized Christianity yeah I mean incarnate in, incarnation is everything yeah right? God came at the time and space it's the whole Christian story right it's the greatest story ever told ever lived it's the greatest reality of the history of history yeah and um, yeah it's utterly disconnected. Uh, I've said this, you know, my, my wife's family is uh, all of evangelical stock, right? This, uh, my my father-in-law is a minister, both her grandparents were ministers, her brother's a minister, her father-in-law, her brother-in-law is a minister. And um, we, whether we, we know it or not, we, we're so influenced by Benedictine mm. incarnational theology in the West, right, that it it dominates, undergirds, at least Anglican and to a large extent Roman Catholicism, right? Um, the incarnation dominates our theology. It does not dominate Reformed Protestant theology, right? Oh. And, and therefore the evangelical free church experience doesn't dominate that, that stuff, right? So it's not sacramental. Right. It's not this idea that God's with you. Yeah. God, you know, as we say, God dwells in us and we in him. We ingest God. Exactly. Right? We ingest him from when we gain supernatural strength that allows us to do mighty things for God. Yes, um, 
that's the key to revival and everything, renewal, everything, you know, is, is, is the Eucharist. And I would say to our evangelical brethren, they say, it's about the Word. I go, yes, it's about the incarnate Word who feeds us, wow. who, who is literally present in his church and in his sacraments, yeah. right? And um, as opposed to somebody's opinion. Right? Somebody lecturing at me for an hour a week. Yeah. Um, I was like, that's nice. <laughs> right? Yeah. So there's, 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 a lot, there's a lot there, but I think the common themes of what we'll be talking about uh, in the future revolve around the Eucharist. They revolve around community and identity and how my generation and successive generations struggle with those things. Yeah. But do you, guys, do you guys have any questions about about that in terms of ministering to millennials or, or Generation Z, or maybe it's really just a, something to process? Oh, well, I'm definitely <laughs> just working with you. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm marveling at what God's done in my life in the last five years, you know. So when you started your process of ministry, I'm like, well, I'm the wise sage who's going to teach him all about how to be a good priest, right? As it turns out, I've, I've learned, you know, I, I mean, I helped him a lot with biblical studies and history and, you know, systematic theology. But Nathan's taught me, like, most of reality of the world that I literally did not live in for the last three or four years. Yeah. And it's like, it's been a very humbling and positive experience for me. Is that, gosh, I have so much to learn. And if I'm going to be effective outside of a peer group that's been listening to me for 30 years, I have to change. Right. Simple as that. Yeah. 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 Someone in the same position, um, but there's also been a, a conscious effort on my part over the last few years to step away from a lot of that stuff, you know, and, and in doing so inadvertently just almost rendering myself deliberately ignorant. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, partly out of frustration mm -hmm. um, because there are no real answers to these questions, Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, I, I used to think that there possibly were, but know, um, I, 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 there's too many questions. Yeah. Too many questions, you know, on how to, do, on how to, to, to address these things, right, as so it relates to churches and the culture, so, you know. It all goes back to what you were saying, Nathan. I can't fathom not being living an incarnational life in community. <laughs> As it is, our lives are so um, distorted and um, they're jagged. Without, without the Christian family gathering on the Sabbath, uh, I can't, I, I don't think I'd make it. I just wouldn't make it. Right. Um, it, yeah. it, it is, it's the bomb of Gilead to, to gather with the believers on Sunday. Um, as small as the group is or as large as the group is. Right. And what we're going to be, <laughs> we know this, we've talked about it, we are the remnant people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at 50, almost 59, however God's going to use me, I realize a big church in Rhode Island is going to be 100 people. It's right, a, and right, yeah. and most of them are going to be a dozen to twenty-five to thirty people, 
and you know the older boomers they don't get it they're not going to be alive right and i'm going to age into my 60s and 70s and your generation is going to be in their 50s and 60s and realizing yeah the church i grew up in the 500 they don't exist anymore this is the church yeah mm -hmm. and this is how we're called to live in joy right in power in confidence and hope and and by living a lively faith we'll drop seeds that eventually will land in fertile soil yeah we just got to trust god with that yeah. yeah and that's what we have to be talking about all the time yeah right? if there is any one answer it is that yeah and we we just have to awaken from our slumber and go forth and live our lives with a lively faith whatever that looks like for each of us individually yeah. because it will be different and yeah. we're constantly trying to awaken our fellow christians to that reality because we've fallen into a malaise because we're overwhelmed by all of the questions that yeah. we think we need answers to we are and you know and we're gonna we're gonna travel light we're not gonna do it willingly right the buildings are gonna go away right you can't maintain these buildings you know people are money right and that the essence of what christianity is about is going to reemerge uh in this new reformation that that god's going to bring about for the whole universal church right i've so, said so in a hundred years the church won't look anything like we no. think it should look like it's going to look like what god wants it to look like so that it can be effective to bringing people to salvation right right i've said time and again that not that denominational differences are unimportant, but especially I've seen from my peers and beyond, they are increasingly less important when talking about Christian fellowship, where as the culture around us puts up more resistance and hostility to uh, authentic biblical Christianity and patristic Christianity, those of us who claim to cling to the one true faith once delivered to the saints will naturally gravitate toward each other and i think that's part of what i think we can demonstrate through our discussions here a couple of anglicans and and an orthodox brother yeah that's got to be you know god's christ what christ says in john 17 is true right god wants us to be one right so god's plan is to eventually have the church one right we, we've been in division there's always division but the major division since 1054 and then just the ridiculous splintering of protestantism into every possible group and her, her, heresy and everything else right is that the point of the church is to be one and, and in god's providence that's where he wants the church to go right and that's going to take humility and faith and prayer of generation upon generation, right? Church has been divided at least uh, between East and West for a thousand years, yeah. right? So uh, we're not going to live to see it, but we have to be part of the process. Yes. We're called to be part of the process, and that takes humility. Like, we all don't know everything, right? right? In fact, the longer I live, I realize I don't really know much about <laughs> anything. I don't know about you guys, but... You know, it's like Adam. Can I? Can we get a time check? Where are we right now? Um, this is at forty-eight minutes, and the last first half was also forty-eight minutes. So. Perfect. So I think this is a good time for us to take a break. We get up and stretch our legs and do what we need to do, and we'll 
finish this conversation later.